Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Whenever and wherever you're listening, we just wanted to extend the warmest of welcomes. So kick back and relax as we continue through our sermon series. Well, hey, it's good to be with you. My name's Larry. I'm one of the pastors here. Oh, what's up? All right, let's do a little dance. I'll do a little, oh yeah, no, I'm just... Getting down, getting all excited, like feeling moment. Hey, if you're with us online, I'm so glad to be with you. I just want to give you a heads up. If you are with us online, a couple things about being online with us. Um, we have uh, hosts that are there every single week with you. Um, they actually are going to try to direct message you, see if there's anything they be praying about. Um, so you don't have, just have to watch the big screen. You can, but you can also watch the little screen. There's a place there to have a chat, interact with people. They also put the scripture we're using. Um, there's a button to click for next steps or inviting people. So just as a heads up, those of you who are joining us online, and I know some of you maybe are going to be traveling um, over the summer when you still want to connect with us uh, in the morning and be a part of service, that's kind of a cool little uh, thing that you can participate in. So you don't just have to watch, but you can participate with other people who are with us on community. So, so glad to have you with us virtually. So glad to be here in person with all of you uh, as we kick off into the summertime and the heat. Um, it's, it's getting hot. I'm just going to say that. If you're new with us, um, we are continuing a conversation in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is found in the Bible. It's the first book of the New Testament. It's right off the bat. And this is really chronicles the life of Jesus uh, and the way he lived and the things he said uh, and how he acted and we get to learn about how that life was lived, what he spoke to us, and we get to learn from that together. And so what we're doing is we're taking a really slow baby step walk through this verse by verse. Um, we started a long time ago, and we're going to keep going for a long time. Um, and so because of that, we created a resource for you. It's a journal um, that we put together that's got the verses we're going to have, which weekend that's going to be on. It's got some place for some notes. It's actually almost done uh, before we have Matthew volume two. We're going to have that for you guys come fall. Um, but I want to give you an opportunity to grab one of these. It's a free gift to you. Um, you can get it at the new friends area as you leave today. And in there, like I said, you got some spots to take some notes um, just to follow along, see where we've been, see where we're headed. I've got a little note in there for you. So one of you have that resource. So today, if you have yours, we're on page 153. And the title for today is Jesus Heals a leper and a servant. So we're going to hop right in. We have just finished the Sermon on the Mount, which was chapter five through seven. Today, we're starting chapter eight. So congratulations. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, hop in and read all of the scripture we're going to cover today, and then we'll dig in. So Matthew chapter eight, <clears throat> excuse me, verse one. When Jesus came down from the mountain, this is in reference to the Sermon on the Mount, Large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out with his hand and he touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present it as the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Next part, this is a different section. We're gonna cover a little bit today as a setup for next week. Verse five. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, begging him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, terribly tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, 
I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to this slave, do this, and he does this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. So that's the stuff we're going to talk about today. We're going to focus a lot on that first chunk, kind of set ourselves up for next week. Um, Here's the deal. So right off the bat, we see this idea of him coming down. He just finished the Sermon on the Mount, this conversation, which was a smaller crowd. And after this, people started understanding and seeing what was going on. This is this new way of living, the way that God intended. You've heard it said this, but this is the intention, the mission that God has for you and I. And so larger crowds started to happen, these large crowds. And sometimes small gatherings, friends, turns into big gatherings when you're talking about Jesus. It's this beautiful thing that happens. I mean, even in this place, I love gathering with large groups of people here and online, and we get to talk about Jesus and it's transformation that takes place. Now, this isn't to say that smaller churches, you know, a lot of times big churches get a bad rap, like, oh, they're just a big church and they don't care. And, you know, they're not even talking about Jesus. Um, it's not to say that um, big churches are bad. Big churches are actually good. We see this. Large crowds were gathered and he talked to them, but he also had smaller groups that he talked to. And that's why we have small groups or you even see in smaller churches. This isn't to say that just because it's a small church doesn't mean that Jesus's name isn't be lifted up. But we see that when Jesus is involved, transformation takes place. Large crowds followed him. So transitioning from the Sermon on the Mount, large crowds followed him. Now we have this man with leprosy. And so here's the big idea, the big part of today. The basic difference we're gonna see here in this piece of scripture is that Jesus draws sinners to God, but religion warns sinners to keep their distance. And a lot of people have different views about religion. And this is what we learn and what Jesus was coming to debunk is the way that religion was being enacted and taking place. So he came and said, I'm here to draw sinners to God where religion keeps sinners um, distant from God. Religion says, hey, hey, you're not good enough. You're never gonna be good enough. You need to stay on this side of the line. You're not gonna be able to work hard enough to get from where you are to where he is. And so you better keep your distance. But then Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it is. Jesus says, hey, you're a sinner. That's true. God is holy. That's true. And I am the way to draw you to him. So you're a sinner. That's true. We get that. God is holy. That's true. Now it's me. I'm the way to him. That Jesus draws people to God. Religion warns sinners to stay away from God. And I want us to talk about the basic idea about why religion sets up boundaries between those who are sinners. And most of us here, you should, or most of us call ourselves sinners. There's brokenness in us. Um, There's things that are messed up. We need the grace of God. So how religion sets up boundaries between us and a holy God. Uh, The purpose was pretty simple. Um, That there needs to be some sort of boundary distance to keep what is pure, a holy God, from what is unpure that there needs to be some sort of distance between what's pure so that the unpure or the unclean doesn't taint or make the pure thing impure. And so they set these up. So in the Bible, these are called purity laws. We see this um, that worked out in the Old Testament. If you were to read, there's a bunch of laws in like Leviticus, Exodus, if you're going through that. 
you'd find these laws, these purity laws, and you'd say they're antiquated and kind of ridiculous. Things like if there was a woman and she was on her menstrual cycle that you can't sit in the same seat that she just sat on. Or if an animal is dead, you can't touch the dead animal. Or if a family member dies or you're caring for a sick person and they die, that then they become unclean or you were holding their hand when they passed away. If you touched an unclean body, you were unclean, impure for so many days and you'd have to go through a purification ritual. And when we hear this, we think like, that's so archaic. Like that's so disconnected. Uh, it just seems so out of touch. But this wasn't just some puritanical, legalistic uh, way to control people. There was actually some practical reasons and ideas behind this. And the reason had to, the, uh, of keeping people distance like this was that they wanted to keep people clean. And they wanted to keep them safe. It was their version of hygiene. They didn't understand really hygiene and germs and the way that infections or those things worked. And we can probably relate to this more today uh, than we have been able to in the past because of the pandemic. Maybe um, we were relating to this more the last few years than we would have a few years ago understood this concept because our world changed and like rules and laws changed. They shifted, right? All of a sudden you have social distancing, People are six feet away, staying distant from each other. You're wearing masks. Or now you're like washing your hands and good hygiene all the time, which parenthetically, I just want to say, that was always a good idea, like washing your hands. And it always will be. I don't know why all of a sudden it was like, seriously, you got to wash your hands. No, seriously, you should have already been. This is nasty. What world do we live in? I'm hearing some amens for sure. And then now... What's the world like today? Now you go up to somebody and you don't know like whether they shake their hand or you're doing a bump or an elbow or just like, hey, you know, like, uh. And, like, and then you're like, are you a hug or not? And all of a sudden they're like, oh, we're hugging too, but it's like a side hug. But then my face is, I got to breathe out of the side of my mouth. They're like, everybody's sneezing inside their shirts. Now it's nasty, right? We don't know what to do. But suddenly we see these purity laws as a result of the pandemic. And so you look back and you can realize to a degree the same mentality or the same idea that they had going on in the Old Testament at this time. Many of these laws were for the purpose of keeping people healthy, keeping people well. But Jesus comes along and he's constantly crossing those boundaries. This is part of him saying there's a, there's a new law of love and care. And, and the, here's the deal. He's not just stepping over them, these purity boundaries. It's like he doesn't seem to care at all about them. His disciples are like freaking out all the time. Like, what are you doing? The Pharisees, the religious people are totally freaking out and they're panicked because Jesus seems to be crossing over all of these purity boundaries without any regard to who is pure and unpure. Like there's no connection to that for him. And then so he tends to do this other thing, which nobody can really understand. Nobody can really explain it. In fact, it actually describes most of his miracles where he tends to actually reverse the effect of the pure thing on the impure thing. Let me say that again. In most of his miracles, he tends to reverse the effect of the pure thing on the impure thing. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. There's a scientist by the name of Paul Rosen who did a lot of research on the psychology of disgust. This is going to be good. The psychology of disgust. He did a lot of research on that. And what Rosen uh, did is he researched two different things. That there's two different ways that our minds work when it comes to 
discuss. It's called our purity boundaries. Now, purity boundaries basically uh, teach us this, that anything that leaves the boundary of us is now impure. That um, it's immediately considered suspect. That once it crosses the boundary of our body, like we are okay with it being a part of us now, but when it leaves us, we're no longer okay. It is cut off. It's no longer allowed to re-enter us. Let me give you an example. If I was to ask my daughter, Maddie, to come up here and stand out to the side and spit into a cup for 60 seconds and then look at her and say, now drink it. Yeah, see, already, all years are like, <laughs> and we would say, why is it? <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop that. Some of you guys are literally gag reflexing me right now. You're like, don't do that. <laughs> why? Why is that not okay? Why is that not okay? It was, you were just okay with it being a part of you. Like you didn't, every time you swallowed, right? But now all of a sudden it's left you and you're like, no, that was already part of me and now has left the boundary and it's not okay. That's why, you know, we're really disgusted and this should never happen. Like when people picking their boogers, right? I'm just gonna get more disgusting for you guys, <laughs> right? Or the iconic, I don't know if you guys remember this, the iconic opening scene of Waterworld. It was disgusting. It was Kevin Costner drinking his own pee. Like, it was gross. Like, those are, that is left. That is the purity boundary. It is the psychology of disgust. It's hardwired into your psychology. Well, there's actually more to that. There's a more aspect of this, too. Uh, you don't need to raise your hand if this is you. Um, but if you can think about this, you maybe know somebody who's been expelled from school. Why they get expelled? Because they didn't work in the system. Uh, they, they kept, the system kept trying to make them work in there together and because they had become somewhat repulsive to the system, right? And so it expelled you out or it exiled you out because you weren't behaving the right way. You weren't doing the right thing. So you were a contaminant to the inside. So what does the school do? It expels you. Some of you guys have experienced this in like really, really harmful, hurtful ways when it comes to the church. Some of you in here, maybe even online, aren't just anti-church from your past through someone else. You're like de-churched. You were a part of a church and your family and your parents went through something difficult. And what happened? You got expelled because you're not meeting our moral standard. You're not looking like you're not acting like the way you're supposed to be. And so then you saw how like the church treated you and your family. And so now you're like de-churched and you're like, I don't even know what to do with that, Right? you got expelled that way. It's a horrible thing that happens. Or some of you guys are anti-church or have friends that are anti-church because they've watched it happen to someone else. This is part of this purity boundary. Their religion creates this space. There's more than just the purity boundary. Rosen also talks about negativity dominance. So let me just give you an illustration to kind of talk about negativity dominance. The idea of negative dominancy is that the negative, the negative always, always dominates the positive. So you have a positive thing. It doesn't matter how big the negative thing is, it'll always dominate the positive thing. The positive thing, though, never dominates the negative thing. It doesn't go the other way, making the unclean The impure always dominates the clean thing. It doesn't work the other way around. The pure thing can never uh, make the impure thing pure. Let me give you an illustration, an example. So right here in this little bucket, I have a nice, nice Tupperware full of clean 
grapes. They've been washed. Sanitize my hands in the back. I'm going to show you just to prove that they're clean. Great. I'm going to eat it. It's really delicious. Oh, that's good. Hold on, now I got to eat it. That's yummy. So it's, this is a clean, pure, untouched, clean thing of grapes. It's delicious. Now, in this bucket over here, I have a bucket full of roaches. You see that? Wow. Oh, that one's big. Look at that guy. That was dirty. Wait, okay, so this is the unclean one, I guess, right? Yeah, Captain Obvious, right? Everyone's like, oh. <laughs> so you have roaches here, a lot of them. And this is unclean. Now, here's the deal. This is the negative thing. This is the positive thing. Now, what happens if I take this clean grape and I take this one clean grape and I put it in here with the roaches? Is that grape clean? You going to eat it? No, right? I'm going to wiggle around in there, make sure it's real dirty, right? So the clean thing doesn't overpower and, and make the unclean thing clean. But now, what if I take one of these huge roaches? Oh, yeah, look at that guy. And I take them, and I throw them right there at the <laughs> high school students. Oh, that guy actually wants it. He's like, oh, that's awesome. But if I take the one, the one roach right here, and I take him and I drop them into the huge thing of grapes. What are the grapes? Unclean, that's right. You're not going to be touching them. He's crawling all over those things. He's like, this is legit. You see how this works? The little bit of negative thing comes over here and makes this whole big pure thing now impure, unclean. That's negativity dominance. That's the negative dominancy of this thing. Until... Jesus, until Jesus. The clean thing doesn't make the unthing clean. It's always the case. The unclean thing will contaminate the clean thing. Don't worry, she's doing that on purpose. Those of you who are online, we're getting rid of that stuff because they're distracted. There's people freaking out. Until Jesus came along. Not only did Jesus cross the purity barriers, but Jesus also reverses the polarity of purity. Jesus, who was pure, is pure, somehow touches the impure. And rather than becoming unpure himself, he makes the impure thing clean. Now, in order to illustrate this, this is the passage here we're reading in Matthew 8. We can see where Jesus now is crossing the purity boundary, the boundary. He crosses this boundary and the disciples don't want him to go near a leper at all. Like they would be freaking out right now. You have to get away from him. We're gonna get sick. We're gonna get exiled. This is how this culture works. This is not okay. But he reverses the polarity of this. Rather than Jesus being infected himself by leprosy, the leper is made clean and whole by Jesus. It says, a man with leprosy came to him bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Did Jesus, here's a question. Did Jesus, did Jesus have to touch him to heal him? Did he, did he like, he couldn't even just heal them from a distance? 
you know, like abracadabra, you know, something awesome. The answer to that is, yes, he could have. And, and why we see this is because in just a couple of verses, we're going to see where he heals the centurion's servant as, as we go into next week. And he wasn't even there. He wasn't even in the room. He wasn't even in the space. And then we see in John chapter 11, Jesus goes to his friend's house, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus is in a tomb. Jesus stands out the tomb and says, come on out, brother. And he does. He didn't have to touch him. And so Jesus didn't have to touch the leper to make him clean. He didn't have to cross the purity boundary. So why did he do it? It's because the man needed to be touched. He needed to be touched because the leprosy wasn't just this disease that had been wreaking havoc on his life and his body. It also destroyed his community. It was destroying people's community. It totally isolated and segregated and segmented him from everyone else. Nobody was allowed to touch them. And who knows how long it had been since this person had even been touched. In fact, everywhere he went, he had to yell out, unclean, unclean. So not only does he have something going on with them, not only is he wearing a mask, right? He's not going to like say it in that culture, in that community. Now, some of us have actually experienced this to a degree. Some of us have experienced because of COVID, if you've gotten it personally, you've experienced or friends have experienced quarantine. You know, a lot of us experienced this right in the beginning of the pandemic because for the first time we were like shelter in place. You remember that one, like the first one? In the beginning, we were like kind of cool with it. We were like, cool, I get to binge watch everything I want to watch, right? And then I'm around, you know, my family. And then we're like, I hate my family. I need to get out of here. <laughs> I don't have anything else to watch, right? And, and then all of a sudden we discovered loneliness and isolation. And then we discovered things like Zoom. And then we were okay with Zoom then, <laughs> right? It was this new thing that at least gave us some kind of connection and community. But if you've ever had it and then experienced quarantine, you've seen maybe what it's done to you or some of your friends, sort of like this psychological, emotional, mental thing and how it's made it so difficult. Um, a couple months ago, just before I had emergent surgery, unfortunately, after my whole family was like triple boosted, um, my wife and three of the kids got COVID and they got it bad. And I could not get it because I was, I was going to be having surgery. I was hurt in a bad way. Um, they were worried. And so isolation completely. They had just recently been out of town before that. So I hadn't seen them. And so there was distance. So there ended up being a longer period of time where we're separated and we're trying to like move things around the house. So it's like completely isolated, no touching, not being in the same space of the room at the same time. You guys have heard this. You've experienced it. And my youngest daughter, Elsie, who is 10, um, she was super struggling with it. I mean, she's like a daddy's girl, wants to snuggle, needs hugs, needs to process um, emotions and everything else that comes with it. And so this is exasperated. Now, not feeling well, and then her knowing that I'm not doing well, and I'm going to go have a fairly large surgery, um, potentially, that was coming up fairly quickly. And so she was worried. And so there's just extra stress and extra distance. And she couldn't talk to me, and she couldn't you know, hug me and feel like it's okay and be close. And I remember really specifically, there was, um, it was just like a day or two before um, I was having surgery and finding out how that was going to work. And she was outside on the back patio. 
She was pretty worked up about stuff, and we were trying to get him, you know, vitamin D, all that jazz. And I had gone outside from a distance, and she was sitting in a chair with her back to me, just kind of trying to process some stuff and ask, and I'm trying to explain some stuff to her. And she was just overwhelmed, and I remember I walked up behind her, and I finally decided to, I reached over the back of the chair, and I just put my hand on top of her head. And immediately, she just began to sob. It was just touch. It was just over, you could see it over her whole body. If I just need to know it's okay, I just need to be touched. I feel so isolated and so distanced. Now imagine, friends, if you had to live this way, not for just a year, two, three, but a decade or more, you've been isolated and no physical contact. See, Jesus didn't have to cross the purity boundary to heal the man. He did it because he needed to be touched. And so he reached across the line and he touched him. So I would ask you, where do you need Jesus to reach across the line and touch you? And then Jesus reverses the polarity of sin and the disease. You're going to see this throughout many of his works that he gives, forgives their sin and that's more powerful and then heals them because that's who he is. His holiness isn't contaminated, but rather the, the, the man's disease is cured. It says immediately his leprosy was cleansed and Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present an offering that Moses commanded and testimony to them. See now, a lot of us would pause there and be like, why is this like a secret? Like, why is Jesus keeping secrets? Like he's just trying to be like undercover no, this happens multiple times. This was because he actually wanted to bring honor and dignity and love and care to someone else. You know, if that happened to you, you'd be like, wait, you don't want to be honored because of this? You don't want your name to be honored because of this? You don't want more people to know who you are and how great you are? No, no, no. I want something for you. And it's this. Priests in this day were sort of like the administrators of the law. They were like the arbitrators of the law. And when someone wanted or needed to be declared clean, when they had been unclean, they had to go to the priest in order to be declared clean in this specifically, and then to re-enter into society. This is all described in Leviticus 13. If you ever want to look it up at nighttime, it's great night read. It'll put you right to bed. Describe how people who were unclean had to go um, to the religious leaders in order to be declared clean so they can re-enter into society. So now Jesus has cured this man and told him, go back to the religious leaders, not because the religious leaders were going to cure the man, but because he needed the man to be able to re-enter society. He wanted him to be back into community, to be welcome into a space. And the only way to do that was through the religious leaders. And he understood that. And he wanted it. It's, it's the humility, the humble servant of Jesus says, not great is my name. I want this for you to be able to re-enter into, to live, to live in a, what do we call it here? A grace-filled community. So let me just share with you um, really quickly, a few ideas about this passage as I wrap it up. First of all is this. Only Jesus reverses the polarity of sin. 
Only Jesus reverses the polarity of sin. This is why Jesus draws sinners to God and religion warns to keep their distance because religion doesn't reverse the polarity of your sin. You can't go to church enough. You can't behave well enough. You can't communion or Eucharist enough. You can't go to confession enough. You can't do anything on your own power. No, nothing is good enough that will actually reverse the polarity of the sin that's infected you, the brokenness that's in us. Only a relationship with Jesus does that. And it is by his touch that our sin is reversed. The effect of our sin is reversed in him. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes this, he himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He absorbs our brokenness. It's our brokenness. It becomes his brokenness. Then he makes us whole as he reverses the polarity of sin. There's, um, there's this lie. The message of religion is, hey, get yourself cleaned up. Then come to God because you're not clean enough. You're not good enough. You can't cross the line of purity in here. Like you deserve to stay on this side of the line because you are impure. So stay over here. This is the lie and the message of religion. And if you want to get onto the other side of the line and get close to God, then you better work harder. You better do this and you better not do this and don't do this and don't do this. And the problem is, is you'll never be able to work hard enough to get clean. You can't clean yourself up to be in the presence of the holiness of the righteous God. It'll never work. But Jesus himself, God in flesh, crosses the line and comes to you and says, I can reverse the polarity of sin through my death on a cross. I'm going to absorb what's broken in you and exchange it and make it whole. And so he comes to us and asks, what's the most disgusting, shameful, hidden part of you? Would you bring that to me? Maybe for some of us this week, it's processing what what is the most disgusting, shameful, hidden part of us? And actually bring that to Jesus this week. Say, here, it's yours. I'm putting it at your feet. Some of you can think in past terms. Some of you can think of um, before you came to a relationship with Jesus, you think about the things in your past that are shameful or disgusting in your past. And, and then you acknowledge, you have the knowledge that Jesus, like Jesus, he crossed the purity boundary and he touched that leopard the same happened as Jesus crossed the boundary. He reached in and he touched the impure parts of you. And it's not just a one-time event. It's not just a one-time event. This is something that needs to happen over and over again, where we invite Jesus into those hidden places, into those shameful places, and allow him to touch those things and take those which is impure in us and make it pure. Because he, he reverses the polarity of sin. Second, Jesus wants to enter into the brokenness. He wants to enter into our brokenness and not be shut up in churches. Now, this is really important because this is what religious, religion does. What religion does is it says, there's a tidy little spot. There's a tidy little spot for Jesus. And this is where the line is. We're going to keep him in this box, in this space right here. And nothing else is going to come in that's impure. There's certain levels that you can get into this. You even see this back in the days with the temple. And what we tend to do is we, want to, we like that idea. We like to keep Jesus tucked behind the purity of the, 
of like the sacredness of stained glass and hidden behind the purity of our altars because that's pure and holy and right. And then we like to keep all the other things of our life separate. We're like, you live here, Jesus. We'll come visit you on the weekend for like an hour, 65 minutes at maximum. We like to sing songs. This is fantastic. It's like a concert every week. I love it. We'll hear about you. We'll praise you. And we'll say, amen. We'll say, yes, Jesus. But Jesus, I don't want you coming home with me. I don't want you leaving the church. Jesus, I do not want you coming into my house. I need you to stay out of my bedroom. I need you to stay off the internet browser. I definitely don't want you on my phone or in my social media accounts. And as long as you keep Jesus in the church, as long as we keep him hidden there and we keep him at distance, here's the truth of the matter. This is what religion teaches us to do. But see, friends, Jesus wants to enter into the brokenness of our life. He wants to enter into the brokenness of your marriage. He wants to enter into the brokenness of your relationships. He wants to enter into the brokenness of your, of your work or your purpose when you're trying to figure it out. He wants to enter into the brokenness of like how you're raising your kids and your child. He wants to enter into that stuff. Not just stay locked up in a pretty little box where he's protected because what we've communicated when we think this way, is that this idea that God needs to be protected from our sin. We can't let the impure thing be near the pure thing because it's going to messed up. I'm going to tell you right now, a God who has to be protected from the filth and the disgusting reality of our sin is not a God who can save you from it. He is not a God who can save you from it. We need Jesus to come out of the church buildings and from behind the stained glass and the purity altars and get into our lives because that's what makes a difference. It's because Jesus wants to enter in the brokenness of your life, not be shut up in it. Religion did not heal this man of leprosy. Religion is what kept him isolated and distant. It is Jesus who reached and he healed him. And Jesus, who can heal what's broken inside of you, it's him who can heal what's broken inside of you. It is Jesus who has the power to change you. It is Jesus who has the power to break the bonds of addiction, to free you from the old ways of thinking and the patterns of life. It is Jesus that does that. Third thing, last thing. Jesus doesn't just make us well. He restores us to community. It's not just, hey, you're healed. It's, hey, you're here now. I want you to enter society. I want you to be in community. I want you to be a part of redemptive relationships. Weird, we have that on our wall too as a value. That's a characteristic of Jesus. He wants to make you well, yes, but for what purpose? Because he wants you to be a part of his body. He wants you to be from somebody who's going around feeling unclean, unwelcome. You know, there's the stigma. I've heard even some people that come here that walk in and go like, oh gosh, the walls almost came down. Like we have horrible engineering here in this building. You know, <laughs> we're like, oh, lightning is coming. Like, it's crazy. But that's what we think. Like there's a stigma. We have to walk in and be like, unclean, unclean, right? I'm not welcome here. Oh, good thing this doesn't feel too churchy. But he not only starts by reversing the polarity of our sin and by making us well, it doesn't end there because what he wants to do is he wants to disentangle all the ways that sin has broken your relationships with other people and isolated you and separated you from them. 
That's who he is. That's what he's showing us he does. Jesus doesn't want to just make us well. He restores us to community. As a setup for next week, verse 5 says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, begging him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's terribly tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another one, come, and he comes. And I say to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now Jesus heard this, and he was amazed and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such a great faith with anyone in Israel. I'm going to read verse 10 to you one more time. It says, now Jesus heard this. It says he was amazed. This is the only way in the Greek, this adjective that's used, that was ever used this way. The only time when Jesus speaking, it was used. This is such shock and awe, eyes wide open, blown away, like back onto my rear end, unreal amazed. And so then he told everybody around him following, says, truly, I say to you, I have not found such a great faith with anyone in Israel. So friends, I would ask, when was the last time you were amazed by Jesus? When was the last time you were just blown away thinking and remembering and acknowledging and understanding that the God of the universe sent his son to get this close to you and so he could reach in and touch you to enter into your brokenness, to restore you to community. For some of us, that's what we got to connect to right now. Because for some of us, we're just like, eh, that's cool. Well, maybe right now we just need to recapture the awe and the wonder. And for some of you, you know, the awe and the wonder that you just get to surrender it over, that you get to walk in, that you get to re-enter into community, that you get to be touched and cleansed of those things, those broken things, those lost things, those dead things. And he renews and restores and he mends and he finds. In just a moment, we're going to respond in worship together. And maybe in the midst of worship, you allow space. We allow space as the Holy Spirit is in this place to do what he needs to do and be amazed by it. For some of us who need faith, for some of us who need peace, for some of us who need rest, for some of you who need courage, for some of you who need healing, for some of you who need comfort or joy, May we be amazed as we sit here and respond in worship and walk up and bow down before him and say, Jesus, if you are willing, would you cleanse me? Would you take this? Would you renew this? Would you restore this? Would you energize this? 
Would you carry this if you're willing? And friends, the beautiful part is he will reach out right now and say, I am willing. Friends, he is willing. Would you stand to respond and worship? And this concludes this week's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed spending some time with us. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our YouTube and find us on Instagram at EngateCF. See you next week.